0: And one more time, welcome, good morning, glad that you're here, especially if you're visiting with us. My name is Ben Griffith, one of the pastors here, and so glad that you're with us. Uh, You can see our passage of Scripture printed there in your bulletin. We find ourselves in Mark 10, beginning in verse 32 this morning as we continue to march through Mark's gospel. You may be familiar with the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Uh, It's one of our um, confessional standards uh, here at Cornerstone as a PCA church. You may not know every question and answer of it, but I bet, I bet you're familiar with the very first one. Um, the very first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism is, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Now I bet, um, I bet if we were writing that catechism right now in the 21st century, we might phrase that question maybe slightly differently. We may not use that, that, those little two words, chief end. May, might sound slightly old-fashioned, out of use. It still works, but we might phrase it differently. But here's what the question is asking. Here's what it's getting at. What is man's highest purpose? As a human being, what are you here for? Why do you exist? What's your reason for living? What's the destination that we're all hoping for and pursuing right now, whether we realize it or not, consciously or unconsciously. Maybe another way to ask the question would be, if your heart is like a compass that's always oriented towards true north, what is true north for you? What, what are you aiming at? What are you trying to find? What's the north pole that consciously or unconsciously you're living towards right now? If we boil it all down, here's what the question is getting at. What do you want? What are you designed to want and to desire most in this life, more than anything, at rock bottom? What do you want? The thing is, you have to answer that question somehow. And you are answering that question, whether you realize it or not. It's not a matter of if we have A chief end. It's a matter of what our chief end is, right? You're going to live for something. You're going to value something as ultimately good and true and beautiful. You're going to live your life leaning towards something and yearning for something deep down that you want the most. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of what it is. James K.A. Smith says it like this. He says, to be a human being is to be a lover and to love something as ultimate. To be human is to be animated by and oriented towards some vision of the good life, and we want it. We're craving it. We're oriented by our longings and directed by our desires. It's true. And that means that right now, this morning, as you sit here at Cornerstone Presbyterian Church or as you're live streaming, you might think that you're sitting still, but you're really not. You and I are barreling through time and space right now at warp speed towards what we want the most. Um, so it's a really important question. What is it that you want the most? What are you really after right now? And do you want what you were made to want? It's a really important question. Um, it could be a good exercise to sit down and journal about that this afternoon because I bet that the more that you write about it, the more you realize there's more wants and desires going on in here than I thought. <laughs> there's more underneath the surface. Our hearts are really complex, aren't they? It's a really important question, and that's why Jesus asks it to us and to, and to his disciples in our passage this morning. This morning in our, in our passage, he asks the disciples this question. What do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? We're actually going to hear him ask that exact same question word for word in the very next paragraph that we'll we'll cover next week. But he's asking this question, what are you after? Who am I in your life? What do you want me to do for you? And the reason that he's asking his disciples that question, that he's asking us, is it's not really because he lacks information and that he's genuinely curious because he doesn't know something. See, when God asks these kind of questions of us, it's always because he's pulling us out, drawing us out, pulling us out from behind the places that we're hiding, and and he's wanting to reveal to us something that he already knows that he wants us to see about ourselves. He knows that we're barreling through time and space right now at warp speed towards what we want, and it's probably not what we were made to want. He knows that that we've all adopted... (laughs) And are pursuing after some kind of chief end that might actually be killing us right now. And so he's asking us this question. He wants to do this deep kind of heart work on us this morning. Because we all come in here this morning as sinners with compasses that are pointing in the wrong direction. With true north that has been all messed up. Not knowing what we really want. And not knowing that our pursuit of what we really want has been ruined. And so he's come to restore that. He's come in the gospel to restore our true chief end. To restore that, tr- that's, that search of our hearts. To restore and to give us what we're really after. How does he do that this morning? Let's find out. Mark chapter 10 beginning in verse 32. This is God's word. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. and to give His life as a ransom for many. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, You see us now just like You saw Your disciples then, as people with hearts that can't actually hear what you're saying unless you open our hearts up to receive it. Because there are so many defenses up, so many distractions, and so many other places and wants and desires that get in the way of hearing your word. And so please, Lord Jesus, in this moment, in this space and time, open our eyes and open our ears and open our hearts to hear what you're telling us so that we might love you and so that you might restore yourself in our hearts as our true chief end. Do that by your grace and for your glory, we pray. Amen. We're going to take Jesus' question here to his disciples as our launching point for approaching this passage. His question to them and to us is, what do you want? What do you want me to do for you? I want to suggest that this question, it's really the focal point of this passage. Everything else in these, pas- in these verses that we read is really orbiting around this question, uh, because that same word for want or desire, it shows up a few verses later. Not usually in our translations, but it shows up in the original uh, way that this was written. If you look down at verse 43, when Jesus says, whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave, Jesus is using there the same Greek word that he uses earlier on when he says, what do you want? So it literally reads, whoever wants to be great or whoever wants to be first. That means that from beginning to end here in this passage, Jesus is talking about what we want. He wants to do this deep kind of heart work on us this morning. He knows that we need it. He wants to put his finger down at the deepest part of who we are and do some real serious spiritual meddling in our hearts uh, this morning. He wants to talk about what we want. Um... He wants to ask you this question, and he wants you to sit with it right now. What is your chief end? You know your your official answer to that, but what's your real answer to that? And he's asking us that question because he knows that our pursuit of our chief end has been ruined, and he wants to restore it. Our pursuit of our chief end has been ruined, and he wants to restore it. So those are our two headings, the way that we're going to approach this passage today. The, The ruin of our chief end. And then what Jesus does to restore it. So first of all, the ruin of our chief end. If our hearts come into this world like compasses that are built to find true north, we're naturally, without even trying to, we're, we're naturally oriented towards true north, towards our, towards our chief end, Jesus knows that that pursuit has been ruined by sin. And we see that, that ruined pursuit of our chief end on full display, on full, ugly, messy display in the lives of the disciples here. But the thing is, these disciples are just like us. Um, we're going to see that in a moment. Verse 32 tells us, though, that, that Jesus and the disciples and a, and a big crowd that are, that are following them are making their way to Jerusalem. And according to Mark, the atmosphere was just Electric. There was something in the air. I mean, it, you could feel it, you could hear it, you could sense it. This was the moment that everybody had been waiting for. Mark tells us that they're afraid and they're amazed. Why is that? Well, maybe the, the closest way I can imagine is, is if you've ever been um, at, at a baseball game, let's, well, let's just, let's just imagine that it's the World Series, Game 7, you're part of the home crowd, and you haven't won the World Series in 100 years, kind of like the Chicago Cubs. So I say that for Nate's benefit. And you know that you're not going to be there for another 100 years because you're the Chicago Cubs. Um, and it's, it's the ninth inning. You're ahead, top of the ninth, two outs, two strikes. Your closer is in, and nobody has hit your closer all season. And the crowd starts to feel it and to sense it. Like, you're there. You can taste it. You're just one strike away from glory, from the championship. And it always happens. The closer just kind of, he takes the ball and he backs up from the mound. And he takes a deep breath. And the whole crowd, the whole stadium is standing on their feet. They're, they're yelling. They're screaming. They can feel it. They're one strike away from what they've always been wanting, right? That's the scene here. Because Jesus is going towards Jerusalem, and the disciples and all of the crowd, they know what that means. They've been waiting for this. They've been on the edge of their seats, the victory that the whole Old Testament has been leaning towards, and the, the, and the story that they've bought into, that this is the Messiah who's going to Jerusalem right now, and he's going to deliver his people and kill the enemies and condemn the Romans. This is the moment. Like, this is it. And so the, you can just feel it in the air. There's this electricity, and they're, they're amazed, and they're, and, they're, and they're afraid. This is a big moment. Um, that's the story that they believe that they're a part of. They're just one strike away. And I guarantee you that when Jesus turned around in the middle of all that excitement and electricity to tell them these verses, um, beginning in verse 33, that they, they just didn't hear it. They couldn't hear what Jesus tells them. Plain as day, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. I'm going to achieve victory by being defeated. I'm going to win by losing. They just didn't hear it. Because I guarantee you that all that they heard, after they heard these words come out of Jesus' mouth, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man, after those words, it was just garbled. They didn't hear it because, in their words, that triggered this vision from the Old Testament, the story that they believe that they're a part of, this vision from Daniel that uses this exact same kind of language where, where the prophet Daniel, he sees this vision, he says, "'Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom.'" that all the peoples and nations and languages should serve him. The Son of Man going to Jerusalem to deliver his people so that all nations would serve him. They're just one strike away. That's the story that they believe that they're a part of, which is why they just couldn't hear Jesus say, I'm going to be delivered, not to deliver. I'm going to be killed. And I'm going to to be condemned. They just couldn't hear that. You know why? Because their chief end was standing in the way. What they really wanted and what they had been wanting this whole time comes to the surface and gets in the way of what Jesus was actually telling them. Their true chief end got in the way. You see... They're so close to glory. They're so close to what they've really been wanting this whole time that James and John, they just can't keep it any longer. They're, they're starting to bask in the light of the glory that's ahead of them. And, and in the light of that glory, their true desires are revealed. James and John, they, they saddle up to Jesus. And notice, like, we should have some yellow flags going up when we hear that only James and John are doing something. Where's Peter? Peter was a part of this inner crowd, right? But you notice, it's like James and John, they look up ahead, they only see two seats right next to the throne, and they're like, "Uh, somebody's got to go. We'll catch you later, Peter. And so James and John go up, they leave Peter behind, and they come up to Jesus, and they ask for a blank check. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. (laughs) Here's the, here's the check, I just want you to sign it, and I'll put in the amount later. We want you to do something, I'm not going to tell you what it is, just say yes, and then we'll tell you what it is. It's kind of like your teenager coming up to you and saying, Dad, can I have the car keys? Where do you want to go? That doesn't matter. Just, can I have the car keys? I'll tell you where I'm going after you agree to give me the car keys. Right? It just didn't go like that, Right? And Jesus is not going to be manipulated. He's not going to be fooled. And so he asks them this very simple but deeply profound question. What do you want me to do for you? What do you want? On the edge of glory, on the verge of all of your dreams coming true, what is it that you've been really wanting this whole time? You see, he's asking at rock bottom right now, on the verge of you getting everything that you think that you've wanted, am I your chief end or am I your chief means to a different end? What do you want me to do for you? And you, you can at least admire their honesty, right? I mean, it's, it may be shockingly childish and selfish, but it's they're, at least they're honest. Jesus, we just want to ride your coattails into glory, Jesus, we just want to share in the spotlight. When people see you, all of these people and nations and tribes that are prophesied to come and bow down before you, when all of them come, and they think that they're just one strike away from it, when they come and they see you up there on the throne, we want to be so close that they'll see us too. We just want to be right there next to you. Now, Let's pause here for a moment. That sounds shockingly selfish and self-centered and childish, doesn't it? But, but if you know your own heart, it just sounds familiar. I mean, we might be tempted to, to look at the disciples throughout the Gospels as just selfish and stupid and, and, and spiritual Neanderthals who never get it right. Right, but look, The disciples in the Gospels, they serve as mirrors for us. They're not people to look down on. They're people that tell us what we're really like. And so we should look at them and see ourselves in their reflection. This is what a ruined pursuit of a chief end looks like. You see, what's what's at the core? What's at the center of their request from Jesus? What are they really wanting when you boil it all down? The chief ingredient in their request is this, I just want to matter, I just want to be somebody, I just want to count, I want to be recognized, I want to be noticed, I want to be approved of. We could put it negatively in terms of what they're afraid of. What are they afraid of deep down? They're afraid of being forgotten. They're afraid of insignificance. They're afraid of being nobodies. They're afraid of obscurity, of not being noticed. Does that sound familiar? It should, because the more that we know ourselves and the more that we become familiar with our own crooked hearts, the more we see these same kinds of ambitions and the same kind of fear at work in our own hearts, They're just like us. Sin has turned our hearts inward. We have this inward bent so that we're capable, too, of being in the presence of the King of glory and still all hung up about our own glory. That's what the inward bent of our hearts is like. It's how how seriously ruined our pursuit of our chief end is. We're designed... We're built to want above all things to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But sin has turned that inward so that we're now glory thieves and glory hijackers. Sin has turned our hearts into these big, ugly, messy black holes that just want to suck everything in. And we're even foolish enough to think that we can bring God into our own orbit and turn God, our chief end, into a means to another end, a means for us to be recognized and to be somebody and to get glory. That's what's happening here. And notice, notice how this ruined pursuit of our chief end, it, it destroys the capacity for real relationship, both with God and with other people. Notice with the disciples, think about this. They're just one week out from Good Friday. They're just one week away. And I think that if Jesus doesn't die in one more week, the the disciples are going to completely come apart. They're starting to eat themselves alive. I mean, verse verse 41 tells us that the other 10 disciples are indignant with James and John. Why? Because James and John got to Jesus first. They all wanted the same thing. James and John just beat them to the punch. They were all after the same thing. And their pursuit of their own glory and status, it necessarily meant that they had to step over each other. You see, when, when I've got to be somebody, it means that somebody else has to be second place. If I've got to be noticed, it means that I'm going to turn the people around me into either competitors or means to an end. But it destroys my capacity for a relationship with other people when that's my chief end, is to be somebody who's noticed, Right? And we see that at work in the disciples here. We also see, though, that it's, it destroys their capacity for relationship with God himself, with Jesus. It's, I mean, think about this. What, what's implied in their request? They don't, they don't put this to words, but here's what's implied. Jesus, we've done this much, and so now we think we deserve this much. Listen, they're just cashing in. They're cashing in on the last three years, as messy and yucky as that sounds. We've done this, and here's what we think is the proper reward for that. This is what we think we're worth, Jesus. Here's our price. Um, you see, there's no room for, for grace or for real relationship based on love or for deep friendship There's just this cold, hard calculus of, we've done this much, now you owe us this much. The disciples with their hearts so bent in on themselves and oriented towards their own glory could not understand grace. At the end of the day, this inward bent in our hearts, this stubborn inclination to pursue after our own glory, and even to think that we can somehow use God as a means to that end, here's the thing, it never works. It never satisfies, but it never keeps us from trying. It just comes so naturally. <laughs> um, because the thing, here's the thing, you never arrive. If your chief end is to be noticed, you actually never get there. And even when you think you get there, you've got to wake up and be noticed again the next day. And so it's this awful treadmill that Jesus sees the disciples on. You see, even if you become somebody, you have to wake up and stay somebody, and it's exhausting. That's why why Jesus says to James and John, you have no idea what you're asking. You have no idea that what you really want is going to kill you. He knows that if if he had given James and John their request here, that they would have been eternally miserable. You know why? Because to be in the presence of, of the King of Glory for an eternity, three feet away, occupying those places of honor and still so consumed with yourself, that sounds more like hell than it does heaven. And Jesus, out of love, says, you have no idea what you're really wanting. You have no idea that what you're wanting is killing you. And it would kill you if I gave it to you. (laughs) I listened to a podcast recently uh, where a writer named Harrison Scott Key was was interviewed. And Harrison Scott Key is a memoirist, and he he's actually written two books so far that I'm aware of. One is a memoir, and then one was a memoir about writing that memoir. Um, and he comes from kind of backwoods Mississippi. All of backwoods, all of Mississippi is not backwoods, I promise. But... Uh, he, he comes from some backwoods, Mississippi, and he's, he's, writing, this, he's writing this account, this kind of inside story about what it was like to go from being a nobody into being kind of a somebody, you know, somebody that no one knew about to somebody that ha- actually has some kind of name recognition, you know, he's actually being interviewed for a podcast. Um, and he says this, he says, if you dream of becoming famous and you're lucky enough for your dream to come true... Just watch out, because it's going to turn around and eat you alive. Your dreams have a way of turning into monsters and destroying you. That's really profound. Your dreams have a way of turning into a monster and destroying you. The disciples have no idea, though, that their dream is a monster that would destroy them. That's what's going on here. That's why Jesus says, can you drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism with which I'm about to endure? Now listen, this is a purely rhetorical question. Purely rhetorical. He's asking, James and John, can you walk in my sandals for even 10 feet? Can you walk in the sandals of the Messiah who has left his glory behind to, to enter into suffering and shame? Can you walk in the, in the shoes of the Messiah for even 10 seconds the God man who walked away from what he deserved into shame and suffering that he didn't deserve. Could you survive that for 10 seconds? And it's just cringeworthy, the next their response to this. Like at this point, Jesus should just walk away. It's like this is the last nail in the coffin because they don't get that the question is completely rhetorical. Jesus says, can you do this? And James and John say, "Mm, yeah, I think so. I think I can do that. Now listen, at this point, anybody other than Jesus would walk away. You cannot build a church on people like this. At this point, anybody other than Jesus would have completely lost their minds with disciples like this and with people like us because nothing's getting through to them. They're inward bent. Their ruined pursuit of their chief end is so serious and so lethal that they can't recognize the words that the king of glory himself is saying to them. But listen, as we see that on full display here, we see something else on full display too. And it's the incredible, kind, and loving, and gentle long-suffering heart of Jesus who can sit with the stubbornness of his disciples here and tell them something that he knows that they won't get until later. He tells them something that he knows is going to fly over their heads, but that they know that he knows that he's going to show them the kind of grace that's going to transform them into the kind of people who will be able to remember these words and be changed by it. He actually says to them, you you are going to walk a few miles in my shoes. I'm going to give you the grace, and I'm going to love you so much to let you walk a few miles in my sandals and know what it's like to walk away from being a somebody into nobody. I'm going to let you know what it feels like, just a taste. I'm going to let you follow me on this road from the top to the bottom, from significance into insignificance. From glory into suffering for somebody else's sake. Listen, Jesus knows that he's about to build the church on the foundation of these, of these stubborn, thick-headed, selfish glory thieves. He knows that he's about to build his church on that foundation And he's going to have to give them the grace, the transforming grace, to turn into the kind of people that can bear that weight. And so what's he going to do? (laughs) Well, notice, um, here's what he's going to have to do. He's going to have to go to Jerusalem, and he's going to have to do something. They don't understand what it is yet. He's going to tell them about it one more time, but he knows that just telling them about it isn't going to change them. He knows that one more good sermon, that one more, one more bit of good instruction is not going to get through. He knows that good news is the only thing that's going to get through. The news of something accomplished for them, of what he's about to go to Jerusalem to do. He knows that what he's going to Jerusalem to do, To serve rather than to be served and to be a ransom and to give up his life in their place is the only thing in the universe with the kind of explosive power that can turn this kind of inward bent back out and restore our pursuit for our true chief end. And so he begins to tell them how this is going to work. What does a restored chief end look like? What does it take? What does it cost? Well, let's begin to think about it like this. Verses 43 and verses 44, where Jesus tells them, you need to want to be, if you want to be great, you must be a servant. And if you want to be first, you must be slave of all. If we didn't have verse 45 that came after those two verses, then this would be the worst news in the world. Because all that Jesus is telling them is, here's what you need to do, and here's what you need to be like. And Jesus knows knows who he's talking to. That point has not escaped him, I promise you. He knows that it it is useless to just give them more good instruction, more good directions. If verses 43 and verse 44 came without verse 45, it would be the worst news in the world. Because here's what it's like. It's like that moment that you get in your car, and if your car has one of those built-in like GPS systems, maybe, maybe built-in or that you can hook your, your iPhone up to, and you can plug in directions, and, 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 it, and you, you plug in an address to somewhere that you've never gone before, and, and it shows up on the screen your directions to where you need to go. Okay, so you have up there on the map, on the console, where you need to go. The map is telling you where you need to go. But then you look at the needle of your gas gauge, and you see that it is beyond the E, and you try to crank up your car and it doesn't crank because you have no gas in it. To have a map of where you need to go and what you need to be like is useless if you've got no motor to get you there. And verses 43 and 44 is like the map. Verse 45, though, is the motor. It's the gasoline in the engine that's actually going to make you into the kind of person that can be verses 43 and 44. Jesus says, here's what it is. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What is the only thing, the only explosive kind of power in the universe that can can turn that inward bent back in its true direction? It's this. It's remembering that long ago, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were having a conversation amongst themselves. And the Father said, Son, what do you want most in this world? What's your chief end? What do you want? And the Son said, I want, I want them. I want those glory thieves. I want those rebels, those sinners, and I'll do whatever it takes to get them. You see, in the gospel, the good news of the gospel is that you are God's chief end. He is not going to have his glory without you there to share in it, to become a child sharing in the glory of the Father's house. And Jesus says, I'm going to go through whatever it takes to win them. I love them that much They are that valuable to me. They mean that much to me. They matter this much to me. They are this significant. I recognize and approve of them this much. Brothers and sisters, that's the only thing that can rescue us from this inward bent of our hearts, knowing that we are treasured this much, recognized and valued this much, that we don't need anything else. That there's no other recognition or glory or anything else in this world that we can go after that can give us what we already have for free. Knowing that, that we have been bought with a price, and the ransom price was the life of the Son of God. God thinking and knowing that you are that valuable, and He knows everything about you. That's incredible. That frees you up, don't you see, to like, to strap on a dish rag and go out in the world and serve and be a nobody and be insignificant and go towards suffering, to give your life for somebody else because you've got everything that you could possibly want. That's how good the good news really is, isn't it? You see, when you, need, when, when you know that you don't need any more recognition, no more glory, no more fame, Nobody can give you anything else that the Father is already giving you right now. That's the only thing that can restore us back to the pursuit of our true chief end. And when we're heading, barreling towards time and space, towards Him, then it frees us up to be this kind of person. To not only think that we just need to be last, but to actually want to be it. Because that's where we're going to find Jesus and all of his grace and sufficiency for us. There's a scene at the, um, at the end of C.S. Lewis' Chronicles of Narnia. Um, it's the end of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. You remember the scene where Aslan, the, the Jesus character in the story, has been slain, crucified in, the, in Edmund's place, the traitor, killed by the white witch and... It's the moment of victory for the white witch because according to this deep magic that was written into the fabric of the universe, a traitor belongs to her. And so Susan and Lucy are watching Aslan's dead body sit there on the the stone table where he's just been killed and, and then something happens. They hear this loud noise and the table cracks and Aslan comes back to life. And he says this, they don't know what's, they don't know what's been happening, they don't, know, they don't know what story is playing out, but Absalom says this, the witch knew that the deep magic, which is, a ma- the, the, the witch knew the deep magic, of course, but there is a magic deeper still that she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time, but if she could have looked a little further back, into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned. She would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. When an innocent victim pays the ransom price for a traitor, then death itself starts to work backwards. Brothers and sisters, that's the only good news. that can can turn death backwards and that can turn even this inward bent of our hearts backwards. And so may we go from this place rooted and grounded in his love, in the glory that he's given to you in the Son of God, knowing that you are this loved and out into the world living this kind of life for his glory and by his grace. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, make this true of us, we pray. We're so forgetful, and so probably in five minutes, we're going to need to be reminded of this again. And so, Lord Jesus, by your grace and by your Holy Spirit, root down deep into our hearts this explosive good news of the gospel, that we are this loved and this valuable in the sight of God not because of what we've done or could do, but because of your love for us. And Lord Jesus, for the first time or or for the 10,000th time today, change us by that more and more into your image so that we might live a life for your glory. And we pray that, Lord Jesus, in your name, amen.